0: I'm your host, Michael Callahan, and wherever you might be now, this is where we go next. And the advent of the internet brought with it, among many other things, a way for creatives around the world to share their talents with the rest of us. And what became so immediately clear was how many truly passionate and dedicated creators there were, so long dependent on gatekeeper permission when all they ever needed was a platform. Forming alongside these new creators were vibrant, dedicated communities, hungry for targeted, often hyper-specialized content. So in our interconnected 21st century, niche is no longer a dirty word. It's an opportunity. Our two guests this week create comedic, long-form videos that exist at the intersection of two of today's most popular topics online, nostalgia and video games. Dan Bulick and Pat Brennan co-star in the ongoing YouTube series Console Wars, in which Super Nintendo and Sega Genesis games go head-to-head for 16-bit supremacy. Console Wars recently celebrated its 10-year anniversary and is approaching 11 million total views online, thanks to its enthusiastic and engaged fan base that tune in for Dan and Pat's recurring reviews, songs, sketches, puppets, and much more. Dan, Pat, thanks so much for joining us today. Thanks for having Happy to be here. So to kind of onboard our listeners, I want to kind of explain like the general gist of what Console Wars in, and then we'll do a deep dive with the two of you. So for anyone listening right now who hasn't seen the show, and I'm going to put a ton of links to various episodes in the show notes, think of Console Wars as if Super Nintendo and Sega Genesis had a head-to-head every episode in which the same game, usually the same game back in 91, 92, 93, etc., went head-to-head in the graphics department, sound department, presentation, and more To see which one would come out ahead, Dan plays the part of Sega or the representative of Sega in each episode, while Pat plays the role of Nintendo, where my heart lies. But no offense, Dan.
1: Mm. (laughs) I'm quit. I'm leaving this interview. I'll I'll hang out. I like where this is going. My first walk off.
0: Games you guys have compared over the years include Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, Turtles in Time for the Super Nintendo versus the Hyperstone Heist for Sega Genesis, Mortal Kombat 1, 2, and 3, Streets of Rage 1, 2, and 3 versus Final Fight 1, 2, and 3, NBA Jam, Castlevania, and more. Your sketches have included dating shows featuring April O'Neil, Shredder, and Casey from the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles series, Stop Motion Animation during your review of the Sega Genesis and Super Nintendo versions of Clay Fighter, (laughs) fictional deleted scene from Batman Forever... And a bunch of original comedic songs, including, Dan, how much you enjoy hard
2: games.
0: (laughs) (laughs) I actually want to start with a quote from an article on video game nostalgia from Kotaku, which goes, quote, nostalgia is essentially a kind of homesickness for a specific place. Or in the words of scholar Sean Fenty, quote, a yearning to return to a place, to a state of being. In an article that Sean Fenty wrote entitled, Why Old School is Cool, A Brief Analysis of Classic Video Game Nostalgia, Fenty argues that video games are places that are states of being, and because they are stored, unchanging data, they tease with the hope for a possibility of return, if only we can gain access to them. Though we grow up and change, video games stay constant, in ever-present time capsule that we can re-enter at will, end quote. And the reason I wanted to start off with that quote, gentlemen, is that in the opening months of the pandemic... I found comfort in the familiar. This was back in spring of 2020, specifically things that made me feel, for lack of a better word, safe. And this often manifested itself in a desire to watch shows and movies and play games from my youth. So I watched a lot of Star Trek The Next Generation and Quantum Leap, and I played a bunch of old Super Nintendo games or modern games that were designed in that style. And I watched dozens and dozens of Console Wars videos. And the funny sketches and songs and inside jokes that you sprinkled throughout the episodes reminded me of when I first fell in love with video production myself, when I made similar videos with my childhood best friend, which ultimately led to my love of filmmaking and brought me here to LA. So first, I want to start this conversation off with a thank you to both of you. I know I'm not the only person who found a lot of value in your videos back in 2020.
1: Well, that's that's
0: a lot. But <laughs> I feel a way. <laughs> Trust me, the entire conversation will not be this serious, but I felt like I had to pay tribute because, and I think it speaks to your video's popularity, I think you do connect with people on a certain level.
1: I think a lot of us were right there with you in the same boat, whether it was going back to the nostalgic, like the older games, or playing online games, almost just for a a sense of having somebody else to talk to in that isolation.
0: Yes,
2: yeah, it's so funny because like what Michael said was, was really nice. Thank you, by the way. I see comments like that, like on YouTube or just on our videos. And it's just like, oh, thank you so much. Like you helped me through like this. I was going through this and your videos really helped me. And it's, it's not unwelcome. I, I love that, but it's obviously that's not what I was going for when I did this whole thing. It was honestly just to like kind of scratch a creative itch I had and just to find that it helps people. It's so bizarre, but also like endearing. And I really appreciate hearing those types of comments.
0: Oh, of course, man. And actually, this is kind of a popular theme that I'll discuss with fellow creators during the show. On a recent episode of the show, episode 53, I was talking with musician Joe Sumner about the kind of similar relationship that he has with his fans, where his reasons for writing the songs that he writes are often deeply personal, but then they connect with people in a very universal way. So I think that that's really a common theme among artists, and I would call both of you artists for all the work that you do. And we'll discuss this a little bit later about the connections that we make with our respective communities and how what we create oftentimes becomes larger than ourselves. But first, my guys, I want to lay my cards out on the table here. I grew up as a Nintendo kid. Again, I don't want to cause you to storm off, Dan. Well,
2: I'm about to, I'm about to.
0: (laughs) 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 My love affair began in 1988 with the NES and it was all Shigeru Miyamoto all the time until at least a decade later in 98. But I have to admit, As much as I love Nintendo, if we're going to do the history of console wars right, we have to start with the channel's genesis. Ooh, (laughs) Yeah, I do love myself a good pun. That was a good one. (laughs) (laughs) You had your 10-year celebration live stream on November 20th, 2021. Dan, I believe when the channel first began 10 years prior, you were 27, and your co-star Greg, who has since retired as co-host, was 28. And your collaboration with Greg on Console Wars, at least in some small part, came about because of your decision in 2011 to go out to a bar after you got off work rather than go back to your apartment and help your roommate clean up. So, Dan. (laughs) Wow, you got it. (laughs) In the spirit of your channel's close relationship to nostalgia, walk us through that fateful night nearly 11 years ago.
2: I'll start even a little earlier than that. I guess when I came up with the idea for consoles before I even approached anybody about it. I was listening to music, video game music, and I was listening to Super Nintendo music from a video game called east 3 wanderers from east and i really liked the super nintendo music because that's the game i grew up playing i was listening to the soundtrack i was like this doesn't sound right and then it was the sega genesis soundtrack i was listening to i was like oh my god it's so different oh my goodness this would be so interesting to like compare these two things i was like james Rolfe, you know angry video game nerd he should come up with a series where he just compares like super nintendo sega genesis wouldn't that be awesome and then i was like what forget rolf i'll just do it myself So I was originally going to do it kind of like Angry Video Game Nerd. It was just one dude kind of just comparing two games, looking at the camera, swearing or whatever. It's like really close to Angry Video Game Nerd. I even wrote like a couple scripts at that point. And then like fast forward. Yeah, I was with my roommate. I and I worked on Saturdays and... When I left to go to work, you know, he's home, he wakes up, and then our apartment starts flooding, he's telling me, like, what are you talking about? He's like, the neighbors upstairs left their water on, but it was, like, turned off, and they left, so it was turned back on while they were out, so it just started flooding into our apartment, so he's like, dude, you gotta help me. I was like, yeah, I'll I'll definitely come by after work, I'll definitely, definitely, but (laughs) I wanted to go to the bar because I had a crush on the bartender, and he did not like that one bit, but it's a good thing I went, because that bartender became my future wife, so nothing bad happened out of there. There you go. That's Sam, who's actually in a lot of your sketches now. That's correct. So I went to the bar, you know, she was there. And I was hanging out with my buddy Andy, who Pat knows too. Then I came home and my roommate's very hostile, very passive aggressively hostile, like he won't do my dishes, he'll slam doors when he thinks I'm trying to sleep. He'll be loud when I'm trying to sleep, etc, cetera, etc. Cetera. So it was not the best living environment. So I'd hang out with other people more like Greg. And Greg was actually the second person I throw this console wars idea out to the original person was my buddy, Andy, who was at the bar with, and he was just like, Oh, that's cool good luck. I was like, Oh, okay. (laughs) (laughs) Thanks, buddy. And then I told it to Greg and Greg's like, Yeah, I can help you out, man. I'll just capture the game footage for you. That was originally what he was gonna do. Because I didn't have a game capture card. I didn't know how to do that. He's like, Oh, yeah, I got access to this technology. I'll help you out, man. It's like, great, great. So I'm like, at his apartment, have this great conversation with him. Then as I'm in the car leaving, the idea just hits me like, wait a minute maybe it should be two people doing this show a Nintendo and a Sega guy that way people kind of have like a side to root for like and you have like a face to agree with like oh that's my guy it's Greg's my guy or Dan's my guy yeah as I was driving home I just kept thinking like man it really should be two people and I know Greg doesn't want to do this I go home I write this wordy email of pros and cons because I was a pros and cons guy back then and I just wrote down like look this is why I think two people would work and then why i thought one person would work and then i wrote this really well thought out very detailed email and then greg's response was just okay <laughs> <laughs> that was it just two <laughs> freaking letters after all this time and effort i put into it and that is pretty
0: much how console started You know, there's something about that initial exchange between you and Greg, Dan, that sums up a decent chunk of your relationship while the two of you were making Console Wars in the first six and a half, seven years, where I think it's been you who's been doing most of, if not all, of the script writing and directing for every episode of the show. And then, you know, Greg would show up and the two of you would act it out, but you would be providing the bulk of the writing and direction. Is that right?
2: Yeah. To make it easier for Greg, because I was kind of burdening him with this, like, hey, now we're partners, right? He's like, well, okay, don't worry. I'll take care of the writing. Originally, we both played the games, but then that started to take too long. So I was like, well, okay, I'll just start playing the game. So I play the games, I write the episodes, come up with the vision, edit everything, and just do it all myself. Because less burden for everybody else. We'll get more into the production in just
0: a second, but to kind of give our audience an idea of how long an episode takes to put together from beginning to end, right? From the moment you have the idea to write a script to the moment you press publish on YouTube, about how many hours do you spend working on an average video?
2: Way too many, way too many. I've never actually clocked it, but this last episode I just did, I'm just gonna kind of use that as like an example. I started editing like Monday Once I start, like, editing, that's, like, the big chunk of it. So, this is my, I guess, my process. I start, I play both games. Usually, I have no idea what I'm in store for, because it's usually games I'm not familiar with. Case in point, these Bomberman games, I never played them before. So, I'll play the games, like, a lot, because, like, I'm trying to get, like, every little detail, just because, like, the internet, you know the internet. They can just call you out on missing any little thing, which they do, and they have no problem with. So, I'll play the games. So, that takes... I don't know how long that takes. That's got to take like at least 5 to 10 hours just right there.
0: Will you play the entire game through beginning to end on both machines or just play enough so that you have a general idea of how to rate the graphics, sound, etc.?
2: I try to play all the way through if I can. I usually try to at least get to the ending cuz that's like part of like what we compare, it's like how it was the ending. Is there an ending there? What do they do? So I usually try to beat both games like and get everything everything even like multiplayer even if i'm just like home by myself trying to like play two players somehow with my feet yeah i'll play everything and if i have trouble which i do with a lot of games hopefully there's a cheat code or at least a game genie thing i can do ah, game genie plenty of games that i needed the game genie for our episode before this one roadrunner games i could not beat that super nintendo game it was really hard it's a nightmare it is a nightmare <laughs> So I guess somewhere between five, to 10 hours to play those games, writing the script. I won't write the creative stuff, the skit stuff. I'll just jot down the comparison stuff right away. So that might take anywhere between two and five hours right there.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: And as I'm doing that, I usually try to start editing, like get the video game footage to line up with what we're saying, because then we'll do voiceovers. So that takes like roughly between an hour and a half hour to an hour for each of us mm-hmm. to do. And then like, I'm getting panicky because now we got to start filming in like a week and I haven't come up with any ideas for skits. So like, I'm like even asking my wife, Sam, like, you got any ideas? What bomber, man, what can I do? That's not going to be like (laughs) terrible. (laughs) And she's like, I don't know. Why are you asking me? I was like, just need bounce ideas off you. Coming up with that and then adding that to the script. That's another, what, two to five hours just coming up with ideas and writing that stuff down. And then there's the filming that usually takes about four to six hours, I'd say, Pat, right? Yeah, I'd say so what I do with Pat. And then I usually have like extra green screen stuff that I'm like, don't worry about it, Pat, I'll I'll film this stuff after you leave, because it's gonna take extra. So that's usually probably an extra two to three hours of extra stuff I like to do. And then there's the editing, good Lord, the editing (laughs) that takes, I gotta say, it's probably between like, I'm just ballparking here, but maybe like somewhere between 10 and 20 hours. Yeah. Depending on the episode. That sounds right. If it's something like I've never done before, going back to our Lawnmower Man episode, I'd never done effects like that before in a video ever. For some reason, that's the one that was sticking out in my mind too. I complained to you a lot about it.
1: Even the filming was like we had to do a lot of different angles just so you had whatever you would need to line it up with the idea you had for like the green screen to all those effects.
2: It was a lot. So it depends Like if it's something I've done before, it'll be quicker. But if it's something I've never done before and was like, that'll be kind of fun and challenging, which is stupid because it's never fun. It's always difficult and challenging. (laughs) (laughs) It's fun in your head. Right. It's fun in my head. Right.
0: Yeah. That was something I learned very quickly back in film school. I had to keep putting my producer hat on like every time I would get some wild idea because I'm like, wait, 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 wait. How expensive is this going to be? Right. How much time is it going to take? Do I have the skill set necessary to actually produce this?
2: Yeah logistically speaking, where am I? Right. And then like, I try not to limit myself that way because I coming up with the ridiculous skits. I'm like, all okay, right, don't limit yourself. Like what, if you could do anything, if you had no limitations, what could you possibly do? And then I'll come up with that. And then I'll set, I'll be like, okay, I'm up here and I gotta go realistic <laughs> and drop it like several notches just because I can't quite do what I want. But a lot of times I come pretty close. The Man episode, the ending came out pretty solid and I was really happy because I was like, I don't think I can do this. And then, oh, that kind of looks like a Bomberman game, me and Pat playing there.
1: Yeah, that was an interesting one because during filming, we were trying to figure out the angle to kind of make us look like the Sprite kind of characters, little short stout looking things. So at the end of that, we tried, like Dan was standing up on a chair filming down. And I had this idea of taking a mirror and putting it up on the ceiling, turning the camera backwards. And this way I could kind of control the angle of it. And it worked. It caught exactly what we wanted it to look like you know it was that weird compressed angle
0: outside the box thinking (laughs) i always find it valuable to talk with other filmmakers with people who are in video production like how long it takes to do stuff like this because i think even people who are regular youtube viewers who consume a lot of media unless you have hands-on experience actually producing it it's very easy to underestimate how much time is actually involved Mm -hmm. And just from what you were riffing off there, Dan, I mean, we're talking somewhere probably in the 30 to 40 hour range, at least maybe up to 50 hours. And this isn't even including when you have to compose original music, which you often do for these videos. Oh, yeah. (laughs) Just to put together a single 22 to 24 minute video every month. So I just wanted to at least call that out because it's a lot of work that goes into videos like this.
2: Yes. Yes. It's a lot of work and you really have to kind of love it because it really is a labor of love. Emphasis on labor.
0: Yeah, but this wasn't your first foray into video production. Before that, you were making videos about other topics, including, I believe, drinking game tutorials. (laughs) When did you first develop an interest in filmmaking? When did you first start getting interested in video production?
2: I'd been making videos like when I was younger, short little videos... This is like my regular camcorder, you know, with those little not VHS, but I don't know with the little cassette tapes, I guess, that you go in the video camera. And I remember I used to make a bunch of like Lego videos when I was younger. I did this thing where I like taped staples to the bottom of them and then I can move them around with magnets. Like i got really into it. There You go outside the box thinking. Yeah, when I was like 14 and then like Greg even got into it a little bit. He made some videos with my, some of my Lego characters, too. Like, I've always loved just creating anything, the creative process overall, making videos, writing songs, flexing that creative muscle, just pushing myself to the limits and creative problem solving all around. I just, I love that stuff. So, I've always been about creating as far as I can remember, but specifically videos. Yeah. I guess when I was like 14, and then I did those drinking videos, I guess, but. It's got to be like when I was 23, 24, just like stupid things. Like there was this network called Gas Games and Sports that used to air old Nickelodeon shows. Oh, yeah. And then they used to have this segment called Heroes of the Game. Kids were playing like Foursquare or something, but then it had like this deep narration. Like, and now Kimmy had the ball finally. and She was going to show everyone why she was the king. I totally forgot about that show. Dude, those were great. It was just like really dramatic and over the top, this like simple child's game. So I kind of wanted to create the same thing for drinking games. And I thought that would be really fun to do. And I did like a few.
0: (laughs) And Pat, as far as your involvement goes, you and Dan first met when I think the two of you were about 18 or 19, and then you lost touch in your 20s before reconnecting on Facebook. But when Dan first approached you to take over for Greg in 2018, is it true that you said yes before you had even seen a single Console Wars video? Yes, it is. (laughs) What enticed you? What excited you about the project? Why did you say yes after Dan pitched it to you?
1: I grew up kind of doing the same exact thing. What led you to film school? What led Dan to, you know, start filming his own things like back in the day? It was the same thing. It was like little video cameras, but then you had like your flip cams and you're all digital, everything. So I got into making dumb little sketches with friends. I would edit everything myself with Pinnacle Studio and it just I loved the sketch portion of it. And I also grew up. Big video game guy. I grew up a video game, comic book, movie nerd. So I was like everything up my alley. But yeah, he pitched it to me. And I don't know if it was that we reconnected via Facebook. We actually had mutual friends. I had friends that did stand up comedy that he was mutual friends with. So he came to one of the shows that I was at that they were on. And then he kind of started talking to me about it. Like, oh, that sounds fun. Yeah, I'll do that. Was this when you were involved with hahas and tatas? <laughs> that was the old hahas and tatas, which
0: is now relocated to New Orleans. Fitting. I mean, I think it's thematically fitting for it to relocate to New Orleans. Yeah. Uh huh. Have you guys heard of the show, The Toys That Made Us, on Netflix? Yes. Yeah came out in December of 2017, for anyone unfamiliar, and it focused on the history of important toy lines like Star Wars, G.I. Joe. Star Wars was the big one, yeah. Hello Kitty. Ninja Turtles. Ninja Turtles, yep. Ninja Turtles. And in 2019, a spinoff series called The Movies That Made Us was released, featuring movies like Back to the Future, Die Hard, Home Alone, Jurassic Park. And I think what both of these series, watched by millions of people, I think what they had in common is that they were targeting a very specific group. Because the us in the title, you know, the the toys that made us, the movies that made us, the us in that title is us, the generation of Americans who are now in their mid-30s to mid-40s. So one, it's kind of shocking that there's still not a series yet called The Games That Made Us. But I do feel like Console Wars takes part in that tradition of paying tribute to the important inventions of our childhoods that clearly left a lasting impact on us, right? To the tune of 50 hours a month. So let's stay on theme here and kind of go back in time. So Dan and Pat, what were some of your first experiences with video games? And how do you remember them making you feel at the time? And Pat, we can start with you.
1: All right. So my first experience was actually Atari. That was around when I was born. And even my parents were playing it. That's why it existed in the house. It's like that was their jam. So Nintendo came out. And I don't know who was more excited to get it if it was my dad or my mom, but, oh, they, <laughs> they never touched it once we, my brother and I got a hold of it. Mm-mm. Obviously, Mario Brothers Duck Hunt, that's what it comes with. So that was like my first like, oh, this is
0: cool. What is this gun doing? It's kind of magical when you use it for the first time, isn't it? It really is, especially at that age. It's just like, what? what, What is this dark magic? <laughs> There's nothing coming out of the gun. How is it doing this?
1: And I hate this dog. <laughs> You know, what? I don't know if there were other games in between that I played that just didn't do it for me. But once we got into, you know, the first Legend of Zelda and Castlevania games, I was sucked in. But even to this day, the music for both of those games, like you give me a game with music like that in there. It's iconic. It's like you actually had a symphony. It was incredible to the point now I do same as Dan. I listen to video game music. I actually go out of my way to look for, you know, symphonies and orchestras doing video game music. And there's plenty of them out there. There is a market for it. But yeah, going forward, I mean, it was every system. We were just hooked on it. Every video game system that came out up until I'm currently an Xbox One guy. But yeah, I've pretty much had uh, not all of them. I you know I didn't have, I didn't have a Neo Geo, a Turbo sixteen, a Sega Saturn. Like there's a GameCube. There's some I just didn't get. I was like, I'm not gonna go buy new games for all this because now it's my money. When it was mom and dad's money, oh yeah, But yeah. No, just, I just I kept on with it through my entire life. But playing them when we were younger, it just it sucked us in. You know, as a kid, it's not like you need that escape. Like I was also you know I played outside a lot. We're that last generation. It was always like, all right, you know what? All my friends are home now. The streetlights are on. Time to kick up the video games. So yeah,
0: that's how it went. You're absolutely right that we were kind of the last generation. We were kind of a bridge between the generation that played outside because... There was really nothing else to do Mm -hmm. aside from maybe watching TV like in our parents' generation. And then the modern generation of today who will often, I sound like that old man now, but who can play video games and will play video games no matter what hour it is, streetlights on or not. But to turn to you, Dan, what was one of your first memories of video games and what
2: was it about video gaming specifically that really stuck with you? I guess my first played video games, I was kind of talking about him yesterday during the stream. My babysitter's son had a Nintendo, <laughs> so I was playing Nintendo, and uh, I don't remember what game specifically I was playing, but I was just like, oh my God, this is amazing. And then finally, like maybe a few months later, my parents bought me a Nintendo. So that was my first console, the good old NES. And my earliest memory is how I did not know how to put the game in the actual console. I put it in backwards. Ah, oh, and felt like an idiot and my dad's like no you got to put it in this way so i put it in the right way and it still wouldn't work and my dad's like no you got to push it down now i was like oh okay okay i I knew all that because i played nintendo before i have i have And the game I played was good old Mario with with Duck Hunt. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I do remember when I first played Mario, every time I made Mario jump, I would do the thing where, you know, you move the controller up as he jumps when you're a little kid, right? Mm -hmm. And then, like, just being called out, like, you don't have to move your arms to make him jump. Like, I just want to do it. Let me have fun. So yeah, Mario, definitely one of my earliest memories playing video games and to kind of jump on what Pat said, like when I finally played that amazing golden cartridge of what is Legend of Zelda, Uh, mm -hmm. that just like sucked me in. Yeah. I remember not knowing you actually had to do something in that game. Like I just walked around Mm -hmm. for hours, not knowing you had to go to a temple, you had to get Triforce pieces, you can get like hearts, you can get items. I didn't know any of this. I just went around exploring and killing and it was just like this is the best game ever and then finally i went to like a family party and they were like you know you can go to a temple i was like what you mean this game has a purpose this is amazing (laughs) like it really is kind of an open world absolutely
1: over the top kind of game but yeah like for the size of what those games were at the time that's huge it wasn't a side scroller you know you had everywhere you could go oh absolutely but you could go to a temple
2: dan just go to a temple (laughs) Just to kind of sum up, like I guess video games were kind of like a nice little escape for me because I wasn't good at sports. I tried out for sports teams. I was on baseball for a couple of years. I sucked at that. I tried out for the basketball team in my school twice, twice, and they rejected me. Those assholes. So that's when I got my N64 too. I was like, forget sports. I am just going to play my N64, man. GoldenEye beats every sport. It was just a nice thing to like grab onto because I wasn't good at anything and I didn't get good at anything until I started playing guitar. So for a long time, video games were the only thing I was good at. I'm surprised you didn't get on the football team
0: considering those abs that you were rocking in one of your videos. I mean, granted, you drew them on, but they still were impressive. Right. I should have just shown them my abs. (laughs) Why put in the
1: hours when you could literally just draw them?
0: (laughs) Exactly. You know, funny, you both mentioned Legend of Zelda. That brings back a painful memory for me because I remember when I first saw a friend of mine playing the Legend of Zelda and I was like, oh, my God, I need this game. That was one of the games that I saw that I absolutely fell in love with. And also, I think it was like the first Final Fantasy. When I saw that one, I was like, this is insane. And so from one of my birthdays, I asked my mom, I was like, hey, I want Legend of Zelda. I unwrap my present. You know, you can clearly tell it's a cartridge because of the size of it. You know, it's not a book. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. (laughs) I open it up and it's The Legend of Zelda (laughs) 2. Still some great music. (laughs) Some great music, but it is a entirely different game Mm -hmm. and so when i put it in and i was like what is this side scrolling stuff i'm in a village and like i'm talking to villagers and 2d this is weird Mm -hmm. (sighs) it was one of my first childhood heartbreaks getting that legend of zelda 2 rather than one and notice they
1: never went back to that platform
0: (laughs) the idea of console wars specifically between sega genesis and super nintendo feels very reminiscent of a piece with the advertisements between Sega Genesis and Super Nintendo at that time. I mean, Genesis does, of course, what we all know, what Nintendo don't, with its blast processing. Were any of your inspirations for the channel, Dan, inspired by the rather aggressively marketed
2: commercials of our youth? I'm sure it was. I didn't really remember or recall any specific ad, but You know, just growing up, it was always just like Super Nintendo versus Sega Genesis. And I was fortunate to have both consoles, so I didn't really have a dog in the race. Oh, you were one of those kids. I see. I was an only child. And my mom played video games. So we had everything, <laughs> everything, <laughs> except for, you know, Turbo Graphics and all that, all this
1: stuff. <laughs> right. The same things like Dan, and I always talk about this. I'm not going to brag, but I am a child of divorce. <laughs> so it was two Christmases. So it was the like, same thing. I had Sega and I also had Nintendo.
0: Man, you two will never know the struggle of having to find and befriend a kid at school <laughs> kind of specifically because they had the other console. And, <laughs> you know, eventually, hopefully a friendship would blossom from that but you kind of you're like oh tony's got a sega genesis oh i'm gonna go sit with tony during lunch Uh uh-huh a lot of people sat with us that's why
2: I was the friend that had the CDI growing up. I was the only one who had a CDI, yeah.
0: Oh, damn. And those weird, like, janky Link games.
2: Yes, I had uh, Faces of Evil. That was the one Zelda game I had for CDI. And I thought it was amazing when I played it. With that awful analog, weird remote control controller. Jesus, it was terrible. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah, that controller.
0: Man, this is so inside baseball. But yeah, I remember when I first saw the CDI, I think it was, God, I don't even know if it was like a Costco or something. But I was like, wait a second, even the art for Zelda and Link at the time looked like it was drawn by a knockoff. (laughs) I was like, was this an official Nintendo sponsored game? It was so odd to see.
2: I thought it was the future. I was like, disk based Zelda? Yes, I don't care who's making this. This is this is it. People, look at that amazing animation. Even though, yeah, it did look like terrible that animation.
0: Well, that was the era of Laserdisc and Sega CD. I was just gonna say, Laserdiscs were a big thing. Yeah, everyone had that one friend who had the Star Wars trilogy on Laserdisc. (laughs) Now hear me out. It's a record, but you watch it. (laughs) (laughs) Did either of you have any subscriptions to video game magazines at the time? Oh, yeah. Because I would look forward to Electronic Gaming Monthly and Nintendo Power every month, like it was Christmas, every single month.
1: Nintendo Power, I had a subscription for, and Video Gaming Monthly, I would buy in the stores depending what game was on the cover. Like, I, I remember getting Mortal Kombat and Mortal Kombat 2. And it was just like, oh, my God, this looks so cool. And then you look at them now, you're like, it is literally a wicker hat painted silver, man. But, like, at the time, it was amazing. And Baraka is a plastic mask, but ah, it was amazing at that age.
2: Yeah, I had a subscription to Nintendo Power growing up. I started getting my subscription as soon as I got Super Metroid. Because, like, I was hooked at that point. I was like, all right, Super Nintendo is pretty freaking sweet. So got a Nintendo Power subscription then and it lasted until, like, sometime after like issue 100 and i'm in issue like 90 something i was just gonna say hey dan have you ever been in an issue dang it i never remember what number it is <laughs> someone with shadows of the empire on it you'll see my name in the chrono sugar oh. thing there <laughs> really that's awesome yeah i got the highest score on the speed bike race oh yeah <laughs> that's so cool man that is like hardcore
0: bragging rights at that age
2: and, and at this age
0: yeah, yeah and at this and at this age that's true That is
1: Dan's version of like People Magazine's sexiest man of the year right there. (laughs) Yeah, that's your
0: King of Kong moment.
2: Yeah, there you go. I'm Steve Weeby.
0: (laughs) Oh, man. And you know, especially back then in the 90s before the age of like the modern internet when all we had was like AOL and Prodigy, Mm -hmm. getting that monthly magazine from Nintendo Power, oftentimes that was like my only connection at all to the country of Japan. (laughs) Yeah. Everything cool to like a 10, 11, 12, 13 year old was coming out of one country. Everything that was important to me was being produced by people with Japanese last names. I would just be like this super nerdy kid. I'm like, have you heard what, you know, Miyamoto's like next ideas? And I bring my issue with me to school every month. And I even had this, I think I was in third grade and we had to keep this weekly journal where we would write about what we were looking forward to that week and what happened over the weekend. And I was going through my childhood closet a few years ago and I came across that journal And there was one page on it where I was talking about how I had just seen The Wizard, the movie starring Fred Savage, which was basically a very long, elaborate advertisement for Super Mario Brothers 3. It contained the first gameplay footage to ever be seen in North America. And I wrote how excited I was to play Super Mario Brothers 3, which was coming out in like four days or something. And I wrote this one page long essay The teacher's note, like she wrote in pen, like, because I think she wrote on everyone's journal, you know, and she was like, so cool, super excited for you. Do you have any time capsules from that time similar, like where you can look back and you can say like, oh, wow, like that's a moment in time when like little Dan or little Pat was clearly very excited and into games, whether they're photos or video recordings or writings.
1: I don't know. I will say one thing I'm still proud to own somewhere after you brought up the wizard. I do still own my power glove somewhere. Oh, the power glove. It's so bad.
0: It's very bad.
1: It's awful. It's the worst invention ever, but my (laughs) God, it's cool to wear.
0: (laughs) Yeah, the power glove is aged about as well as that Super Mario Brothers live action show from the late 80s, early 90s. (laughs) (laughs) Take one step from side to side. Uh, Captain Lou Albano. How about you, Dan? When you were first starting in video production, were any of your video productions video game
2: themed? Not really. I mean, I did take drunk videos of my buddies and I playing Ninja Gaiden and really sucking at it. Hopefully not at 14, although no judgments, you know? (laughs) No, definitely when I was in my (laughs) mid-20s. I don't remember doing anything video game related. But I do remember like, because when we first got the video camera, because we were going to go to the Philippines to visit my relatives, and then like had a couple friends over. And then I guess we were just taking a video just to show my friends in America to my family in the Philippines. And then like, I just got x-men mutant apocalypse for super nintendo Mm. so i was just towing that around going look i got x-men i don't know what i was doing (laughs) i was just like like a stupid little 11 year old just i got x-men for christmas i got my x-men and you can't have none yeah seriously just showing my relatives in the philippines that like barely have a tv (laughs) just like how good my american (laughs) life is just like being such a dick and not even realizing it so no, one, actually, when you were talking about your story, I do remember one thing when I was in second grade, I learned how to draw Sonic. Ooh. So this is like 91, 92. And then we uh, we did this thing for everybody's birthday. Like every time it was someone's birthday, you got to do a hand drawn birthday card. And for everybody's birthday card, I always drew a picture of Sonic because I just knew how to draw Sonic. One of the time my birthday came around in February, everybody drew Sonic for my birthday card. So I was like, I was like the Sonic guy. Even back then, I guess I was the Sega kid, you know? You were the one kid at the time who wasn't drawing that weird S shape. Thank you.
1: Oh, thank you so much for saying it because that's all I could picture. It's like you could draw two things at that age. (laughs)
0: Yeah. (laughs) Oh, my God. You know what's really interesting to think about is like how trends even happened in the age before the Internet. Like how were kids because I grew up in California. You guys live on the East Coast, right? You're in New Jersey. Yep. Mm -hmm. It's just interesting to think about how did we all know about that S? Like, how did we all know about these things when we had no real way to communicate with one another outside of like AOL chat? And that was only with your immediate friends. Yeah. Yeah. You know what?
1: Everyone sits around. You throw on a little boys to men Mm. at the time, little Motown (laughs) Philly. You draws those six dashes and you know where this is going.
2: You get out your pogs. Yes. Cool slammer, bro. It's funny, though, because I was teaching, I teach guitar and piano privately. I go to my students' houses, and I was at my students' house this past Friday, and I was looking at his desk, and one of those S's on his desk, and I was like, dude, did you draw that? He's like, yeah. I was like, I used to draw that. I was like, this is nuts, dude. So yeah, that thing's just going to happen forever, I think. Every, every kid's going to draw one at one point in their lives. Wow. There's going to be
1: one kid he's going to try to bring back the Pen 15 club. It's coming. <laughs>
0: Pen 15 club. Oh god. That yeah, that takes me back. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you to join the club you have to draw it on your hand. Yeah. <laughs> now, that brings like two mental images to mind. One, it would be amazing if, you know, we found like a cave somewhere Like from 4,000 years ago, like alongside like the uh, drawings of like Buffalo and stuff. There's just like an S. (laughs) (laughs) Like somehow imprinted in every child's DNA from like the moment of conception. They know how to draw this one thing.
1: The chosen ones.
0: But also that brings up an interesting and related question, Dan and Pat. You know, like this kid who was probably born after... 9-11 is still drawing the same S that we drew when we were his age. Do you find now, I mean, especially that you have this channel that is dedicated to games from a very particular moment in time, and it's probably often a point of conversation amongst people who are out of your age bracket. Do you find that there's any love for that generation of video games among kids of that age, or is that something where they look at you like they might look at me like some old dude who's playing games in 2D?
2: A little bit of column A, a little bit of column B. There's definitely like some kids that enjoy it and they're like, oh man, like I have this one student again, back to one of my students. who's like, just talks to me about like how he played some old console. I played the super old console called Super Nintendo. You ever heard of it? I was like, yeah, yes, I've heard of it it's like spider-man and all the avengers movies there's this
0: really old movie you say i was gonna say he sounds like peter parker from the mcu yeah yeah <laughs> you ever watch this really old movie called alien yeah
2: i think kids can appreciate it it just depends if they're exposed to it mm-hmm. if their parents like introduce it to them then they'll kind of dig it yes but if nobody introduces to them yeah they look at you like the old guy who's like already 80 it's like what are you 80 or something like dude come on man <laughs> game break
0: (laughs) oh i mean you got to use your hand it's like a baby's game it's like a baby's game that's so funny oh man that 3d shark does not hold up (laughs) no it does not i say it all the time
1: that's one of my go-to references too nice
0: this is more of a philosophical question, but so much of the nostalgia over the last really 20 years has been geared like square at our demographic. The remakes of every movie, the Netflix specials about the toys and movies that made us, you know, even YouTube channels like Console Wars, that, that the hundreds of thousands of views that every episode often gets is a testament to their popularity and the popularity of this specific subset of nostalgia. What do you think happens when our nostalgia moves out of the mainstream? I kind of feel like Abe Simpson. <laughs> I can see like some of it starting to creep in, where people will be talking about, you know, something nostalgic's on the TV or something, and I'm like, I have actually no idea what they're referencing. Yeah. <laughs> have you guys been encountering that at all?
1: Oh my god, yeah, all modern music. Oh god, it's like, what is this? That is my old man moment right there. I'm like, who, who is
2: this now? Who's who's in concert? Okay, I'll run into like people like on social media that like talk about like some cartoon that came out like after my time that they're like really into like, man, everybody remember this cartoon that came out 20 years ago? Like I just missed. It's a hard edge.
1: So my girlfriend is 32. I'm 39. She's a big cartoon person. She grew up on all of it. And it's just like, oh, did you watch Ed and Eddie? I'm like, "Uh, Rocco's Modern Life was kind of the end of my
0: jam. Oh, Rocco's Modern Life. God. Rocco's Modern Life and Ren and Stimpy. Yeah. They really don't make cartoons like that anymore.
2: Not like Ren and Stimpy. Oh, no. They don't. And
1: I will say, I am actually friends with the artist for Ren and Stimpy. And he's like the nicest guy. And he's like, yeah, it's weird drawing all this, but I love it.
0: You go back and you watch some of those Ren and Stimpy episodes. And even some of the close-ups they would do on the faces. I'm like, <laughs> how did this get by the adults in the room?
1: That was him. That's Bob Camp. He would actually draw some of like the most disgusting. He's like, yeah, I like to take my time with it. <laughs>
0: I really like to relish the close-up of the
1: flies on the eyeballs. Yeah. Uh, Yeah, exactly. Yeah. The yak shavings.
0: (laughs) Here's a question, I guess, for both of you, but I guess more specifically towards you, Dan, because of just how many of the hours you put into this, even when you and Pat aren't filming or doing the VO. When I was about like 15 or 16, I started work as a video game reviewer. I had a weekly video game review column for a local chain of newspapers in the San Francisco Bay Area. And so every week I would review a game either for the Nintendo 64 or the Sega Saturn or PlayStation. And I did that for about two and a half years. In fact, at the time in 1999, I was the youngest person ever on the floor of the Electronic Entertainment Expo with a press badge. Wow, that's cool. Nice. Which was cool, but also meant that my dad had to chaperone me because I was under 18. (laughs) So it was a mixed bag. But one thing that I kept hearing over and over again from my fellow teenagers is, it must be so cool that you get paid to play video games. (laughs) And Mm. all I could think after a few months of doing it, and especially after a couple of years of doing it, let alone the 10 and a half, almost 11 years you put into console wars, Is honestly, dude, by the time I finished my like two and a half, three year stint and before I retired, (laughs) I didn't play video games for like a few years after that because mentally, emotionally, psychologically, I began to associate the thing that I love to do playing games with work. There's actually a memory that I have from my childhood, maybe was a year in and having to hit that weekly deadline to, you know, play a game as much as I could all the way through, then write a review, then have editors ask for rewrites, blah, blah, blah. And there was this point where I had a deadline in like two days. And I remember a phrase that I never in my life thought I would hear up until that moment, which was my mom yelling upstairs to me, Michael, Get in your room and play that video game. You have a deadline. (laughs) (laughs) And I found myself towards the end of it starting to drag my feet because I started making that mental connection between Mm -hmm. this thing that brought me joy and the dread of work. And I guess my question to both of you is when you put so much work into this thing, right? Especially something that I imagine started from a place of real love and appreciation for video games and especially that era of them. Has it affected how you look at film production? Has it affected how you look at games? Has it even affected how you approach the channel in
2: general? I mean, it has to, right? Because I've just been doing this for so long and it's just been so much work. I generally don't play video games when I have free time because mm-hmm. I want to do something else. You know, <laughs> It's funny because like I buy a game and I'll be like, I oh, mean, I can't wait to sit down and play with it. And then I'll sit down for like a minute and I'll be like, I think I just want to watch a movie man I don't want to do all this stuff like it's just yeah it is pretty draining and other things too like I don't want to watch other YouTube videos about like similar creators it's like I already do that I need to do something that's like outside of this realm of like video games and comedy shtick I guess that I do so yeah anything that's kind of close sometimes I just like no I I, I can't do that right now I need to I need to go outside you're just like fixed and you're just constantly doing the same thing over and over video games or YouTube video games YouTube it's like oh I need to change it up so yeah I definitely get away from it a lot, for sure. I mean, I got like a lot of things to keep me busy. I'm like a couple of bands. I was just
1: going to say, and that's another big factor, especially in the last few months, your life has gotten a lot busier. Scheduling, it's rough. Like Dan's a teacher and now he, you know, he's got his side gig also. I have my own business where it's like, if we have a day scheduled to film, it's like I get an order that I have to get done within a time frame. It's like, okay, so we got to push something back somewhere. Being old is dumb. It's the stupidest thing I've ever done. And it's like life getting in the way of it. But we will always still try to make time for it. I'm only three years in. Dan's at 10 now. So I can't imagine like the frustration he goes through. If we're trying to squeeze an episode out by the end of a month, we've come down to a week literally trying to cram it all in. And you just heard how much time it takes out of his life to do it
2: yeah sometimes when i'm editing i'm on my mac and my final cut and then it just like freezes on me i'm like fuck this shit i quit i'm not doing this shit anymore fuck this fuck <laughs> i'm gonna fucking bust my ass and it freezes on me fuck this uh-huh. computer i just get so livid when i'm like Ugh. in the zone and nothing goes my way just oh it's
1: so frustrating oh man i can attest to that i've been present for
2: multiple <laughs> meltdowns
0: <laughs> i relate to that on a deep deep <laughs> level Mm -hmm. Yeah, whether it's with film editing in years past or just editing this podcast, which can take so many hours to do, finding a reliable computer (laughs) is, uh, (laughs) is crucial.
1: Yeah. I just pulled the trigger and spent way more than I have ever
0: spent on a laptop. So, yeah. Dan, to kind of stay on the topic of production, your first episode of Console Wars comparing the Super Nintendo and Genesis versions of Aladdin took months to finish. In fact, your former co-host Greg went from clean shaven to bearded within that same episode (laughs) because of how long it took to shoot. You released your first episode of Console Wars in November of 2011, and your second episode didn't come out until March of 2012. But now, as we've talked about, you're consistently putting out 20 plus minute episodes of console wars every single month in addition to doing weekly live streams which between as we've discussed script writing production and post not to mention your regular jobs that can't be easy so how were you able to transition to a regular schedule of output while maintaining i guess for lack of a better word your lives
2: I guess you just got to prioritize, right? It's like, all right, I want to do this. I got to get this. Can't be drinking with the boys tonight. And, you know, getting older helps because the boys aren't drinking (laughs) as much these days. Mm -hmm. (laughs) I just like started to focus on something and I realized, oh, yeah, I can kind of have something here. Let me try to get it out on a regular basis. And, like, at that time, too, I'm just getting a little personal here. Like, at that time, between episodes one and two, I was going through a pretty intense breakup Uh, at that time. I was the one that initiated it. So, like, I was okay, but it was. The X was a little. It was a little rough <laughs> on that end of everything. <laughs> that's probably why it took so long between episodes one and two. Personal life has settled down immensely since then. But yeah, I get the end of the day just prioritize and just figure out like, all right, do I want to just fuck around all day, or maybe I'll just put in an hour here and then an hour later and get this thing done before the end of the month.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: I think we're both on that page more so now. Of like, no, we're gonna make time for this.
0: Yeah, Dan, when did you first know that it was catching on with people? Was there a specific video or a specific moment where you realized like, oh, this thing that I thought up in my brain in my own personal life in a town in New Jersey is connecting with people beyond where I live? It's not only getting views, but I'm getting comments. And I recommend anyone who goes and, and looks at one of Console Wars videos, because I think it's a testament to their fan base. Just go into the comments. Because I think YouTube comments are just one grade above Twitter toxicity, oftentimes. (laughs) (laughs) Not a place that most people dare tread. But with (laughs) Console Wars comments, I mean, unless you guys are just filtering out the bad stuff, which I don't think you probably are. Mm -mm. I actually love
1: some of the bad stuff.
0: (laughs) But it's overwhelmingly positive. It's overwhelmingly clear that people, I mean, I'm sure there are trolls. I haven't seen many, but it's overwhelmingly positive and people are supportive. And you can really tell that they care. Like they really Really care about the time you put in; they really are invested in your channel. So, when did you first have that moment where you realized I'm on to something? I'm connecting with people.
2: Man, I never really <laughs> thought about that before. I mean, it's funny because, like, after the first episode, after the Aladdin like had 300 views, like I went into a bar going like I'm gonna be like bombarded by people knowing me here. <laughs> it's like, wait, nobody knows who that <laughs> I <like> am. <him. laughs> so maybe when we broke a thousand subscriptions, I was just like, hey, a thousand, because it took us a year and a half to get 50 subscriptions, and then it took less than a year to get 1,000. So I was like, okay, we just (laughs) took a year and a half to get to 50 and then less than a year to get to 1,000. So I was like, okay, something's happening now. Maybe it was at that point that I realized, oh, maybe I got something a little special here. Pat, as I
0: mentioned earlier, and, and this was kind of a big event within the Console Wars community, when you took over for Greg, how has your experience with console wars been over the last few years, not just your personal experience of working so closely with Dan, you know, on top of your already existing friendship, but kind of stepping into a role that was already important to people and kind of being, I think, clearly embraced by this community.
1: It was weird in the beginning. The first episode I did was Joe and Mac and Dan wrote my part appropriately. Like uh, he writes the scripts now, literally with my voice in his head like he writes things out how i speak right he didn't know how to do that in the beginning
0: right well it was the awkward aunt viv transition (laughs) exactly
1: thank you (laughs) good reference but i think it took me two or three episodes to just get comfortable and like find my own kind of character like i wasn't trying to be greg i went into this not watching them and that was actually one of the best things i could have done i wasn't going to try to be what greg's character was i was coming in as Pat. It was a weird transition, but it was a quick one. I think by the time we did the Ultimate Mortal Kombat 3, and I tell Dan this all the time, that's the episode that is my personal favor because I just, I had a lot of free reign, a lot of improv, like we came up with how this Staten Island Sub-Zero character was going to play out. And the voices. is like, when I put on a dumb costume, a voice will just come with it and we'll hit the ground running. It's like a whole different persona. but I don't know how I'm going to play it until I'm dressed like an idiot. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, once we get into that, everything after that was great. A lot of people still ask about Greg. I've hung out with Greg. Like, Greg and I are friends. Like, I I got nothing against
2: Greg, and Greg's doing fine. Still get asked what happened to Greg, too. Like, wait, this isn't Greg. (laughs) It's like, wait, where have you been, man? I was like, it's been three years, man. I think one of the
0: funniest instances of that that I saw was when I was watching the 10th anniversary stream, where Greg was literally there. (laughs) And people were asking in the chat what happened to Greg or where's Greg. And it's like, he's right here, dude. (laughs) (laughs) thank you. He's physically here. Uh, I think I pointed to him. Uh, But again, I think, you know, and not to shower you dudes with praise, but I think that that connection to Greg, people wanting to check in on him, see how he's doing and wondering about his status. I think it speaks to impact. And we'll get to this in a second about your relationship with your community. And I think just creators relationships with their community in general, and how kind of both endearing and odd that can be. But it does speak to the fact that you know, people feel a certain kind of connection if they watch or listen to enough of your media over time. I've experienced kind of a similar feeling sometimes when I get messages or emails from people who listen to the podcast. It took me a while to realize, oh, I'm literally in people's ears for like an hour plus every other week. And that can be like a very intimate thing, right? like Before the pandemic, one of my best friends, the guy who I used to make video sketches with in high school, he and I both became inspired to move to Los Angeles after college because of this experience that we had together. We have this like semi-weekly tradition where we order Mediterranean food. He comes over to my apartment and we play video games or we watch something on YouTube. And for a solid several months, I would just show him episodes of Console Wars because he was a Sega kid. I was a Super Nintendo kid. And It also reminded us of the fun that we had making sketches together. It's interesting, too, because I can even feel like when I'm talking to you guys right now, like I'm like, oh, I'm talking to to Dan and Pat, these guys who I've spent all these nights with, and I have to keep reminding myself in the same way that I have to remind myself when someone emails me and is like, oh, Michael, it's meant a lot to me that you had this episode. And I'm like, this person's talking to me like they know me really well. And I guess to them they do, but I don't know them. And so it's a kind of weird asymmetric Relationship Is that something that you guys have found yourselves dealing with? And how have you navigated that?
1: Oh, absolutely. We have a weird handful of people that follow us that, yeah, I think Dan knows at least like five of the people that I'm thinking of. He knows pretty well. I know two of them pretty okay, but I've actually twice now been called out in public and it's been weird because like, I mean, if you, if you have a podcast, you are in people's ears, people will recognize us out in the world. But like running into people out in the world has been actually been really cool because the one time I was at a, out at a bar and I'm just talking to my girlfriend, guy comes up and I, in my mind, it was like, he's going to ask for a cigarette or something. And he's like, Hey man, I got a question for you. All right. Are you Pat from console wars? I was like, well, what? That is not where I saw this going. But yes, yes, I am. I had a conversation with him for, I don't know, maybe five, 10 minutes. He's like, you want a shot? I was like, I will have that shot. I I was so taken back. I honestly could not tell you the guy's name. I took a picture with him and I even put it on the Instagram. But I talked to the guy for five, 10 minutes about his upcoming wedding. And he's like, I can't believe I've never met somebody famous. That was this cool. It's like, I'm not famous, man. I'm what? I'm just a dude. And it was the same way for the other sighting. I was just like, all right, you came up. And if you were just a drunk guy with like, Oh my God. Hey, what's up, man. And this level of energy, I'd be like, I would entertain you for a little bit. But these guys were just stoked, and it was was cool, you know? I'm
0: not going to lie. Fame has a very interesting and specific definition today that it really never had prior to maybe 15 or 10 years ago, in that, you know, in the era that we were growing up, in the 80s and 90s, and really any time before that, in the age of mass media anyway, for someone to be famous millions of people had to know them. Mm -hmm. Or maybe they were like a local celebrity around town, like a lady who owned a goat or something. (laughs) (laughs) You know, it's like, oh, it's the... Oh, Gladys, you know her. Yeah, Gladys with the goat. Everyone knows Gladys. Mm -hmm. But now... And I wonder if it's also kind of a remnant of what we consider at our age a celebrity. I think probably if you're anything like me, we've internalized that idea of like, oh, I can't be famous because I'm not, you know, Tom Cruise. I'm not on a TV show.
1: Right. Exactly. To me, it's a movie star or a rock star or something like that. Yeah,
0: exactly. But in many ways, like while that's still true to some extent, there are basically like micro celebrities because you are in people's living rooms, on people's phones, and people's ears mm-hmm. every single month. And they get to watch you guys have sketches, make them laugh, you know, have re- recurring characters. Like, what is it? The, the mailman puppet? Police officer. <laughs> the, the cop. The cop.
2: Yes, yes. Pastrami. <laughs> officer Pastrami.
0: <laughs> exactly. Officer Pastrami. And, and so people become endeared to you in a way that, yeah, I don't think ever quite becomes normal,
2: right? Have you had experiences like this, Dan? Well, I'm just going to start off by complaining. Pat's been doing this show for three and a half years. I've been doing it for over 10. I've never been recognized at a bar once. (laughs) Never. (laughs) Only at conventions do I get recognized, but never just like a random like, hey, are you Dan? You know, the fucking guy who started this thing. (laughs) Anyways. (laughs) No, I love meeting fans, but you know, it is weird because... Like you said, Michael, like they think they know you because like you've been in their houses or living rooms like every month and then they'll like talk to you like that's the world you're in all the time. They'll be like, hey, remember when blah, blah, blah. Or they'll like, they'll quote something at me that's like something I literally said and I don't remember. Mm -hmm. I'll be like looking at them like, okay, it'll dawn on me. We actually talked about that last night. Yeah, it'll dawn on me. Oh my God, they're quoting me and I just totally like acted like a dick because I didn't realize he was quoting me. Like I feel so bad. So it's weird in that way. And then it's like, you never know what to say to them, too, at the same time. It's like, I guess I could quote myself. That feels so freaking weird. You know, if they want to ask me questions, I'm fine with that. But like, you know, they had this idea of who you are. And then you don't know how, like, am I acting the way you want me to? I'm just, I just want to make you happy. I just want you to walk away, like, happy that you met me.
1: You said that like quoting yourself. It's like a me once said, Are we doing this? Like what do you like, how do you do that?
0: Uh, it is interesting because they know a version of you that isn't really you. And so when they're quoting you back to you, they're not to reference an earlier episode with Joe Sumner, who's this touring musician he tours with, his dad sting a lot. Oh, him? I've heard of him. <laughs> <laughs> but what Joe talks about, I think, is in many ways similar to what you're describing here, which is that people are talking to you, but they're not really talking to mm-hmm. you because they don't know you. They know a facsimile of you. Right. And in kind of internalizing that and being okay with it takes a while, I, I imagine, because before that, you're probably just used to, like every other person on earth, having conversations with either strangers or people who know you well, but not that weird in-between world where they know a version of you, but you have no idea who they are.
2: Yeah, it's so bizarre because they'll be like, Oh man, you're so cool and be like, Oh, thanks. And then it's like, Well, I don't know where this conversation's going, but nobody's talking right now. <laughs> <laughs> I've
1: only had one convention that I've done with Dan because it was like, We did one and then the world went away. Oh yeah. But it's like, you know, people coming up be like, Can we take a picture? It's like, All right, yeah, get in here. But they it's just like they're so nervous about it. it like They are.
2: They they get so nervous, it's like around me? Me? Really?
0: <laughs> right. To loop back to that, talking about your channel's comment section, which, again, for YouTube is like quite rare because of how positive it is. But I think fan bases in the age of social media, regardless of how overall positive they might be, can get very passionate, especially when childhood memories and nostalgia are involved. So sometimes which version of a game, a Genesis or an SNES version, is an easy call. I mean, look, I already said I was a Nintendo diehard growing up. But even I immediately recognized when I saw it in like 1992 that the Genesis version of Aladdin was clearly superior. Sometimes what we decide is the better version of a game comes down to the personal interplay of our own decades-old biases and like warm feelings. The Sega version's better because that's the one I grew up with and so on. So you have a sizable fan base. That's true. And your most popular videos have... Hundreds of thousands of views, like we've discussed. Have you ever or do you ever worry about incurring the wrath of people who may take a loss or victory of a given console personally? Does that ever happen because they have an emotional connection to whatever you deem the loser of
2: a video? I mean, there's definitely, you know, a handful of people out there every episode. They're just like, well, this channel just lost a subscriber because of that bullshit outcome. Right. He's like, I disagree with that assessment. (laughs) It's not the thing that I grew up with, so I'm going to disagree with it. And, you know, <laughs> you've ruined my childhood, Dan. Yeah, yeah, exactly. You got to take it with a grain of salt. You just let them vent. Don't feed the fire. I've yeah. taken the bait sometimes on some of those things. I'm not, not my proudest moments. Oh, I've seen it. You know, what's
1: funny is when you comment and you you do take the bait on um, specific ones that I read it, I hear it in your rage voice and then immediately go back to being normal. And I love that. <laughs> But some of the bad comments, you just, well, I'm sorry you feel that way, or you'll just like,
2: nice them to death. I do find that works sometimes. Like, there was one comment specifically, I remember, like, we do sketches all the time because that's our favorite parts. We love doing that. That's where my mind went. Anyway, so... I remember one comment was like, man, I would like this channel if it wasn't for these stupid sketches. And then I just commented like, I'm sorry you don't like them. Hopefully, maybe you'll watch a few more episodes and they'll grow on you. And then he commented back on a later episode. He's like, you know, I commented something really nasty and you were really kind to me. And you know what? I did grow to like your channel. So I just wanted to thank you for being kind. So I was like, wow. Wow. This actually works. So I tend to do those types of comments, killing them with kindness, like Pat says, as opposed to like, well, fuck you too, buddy. You know, those just escalate to like, like nonsense. Mm -hmm. Who needs that, right? I think that's right. I think
0: what you said echoes something I heard from uh, someone I interviewed on the show, an an author who has a pretty sizable Twitter following as well. And she talked about an experience that she had where someone DM'd her and was like, I hate you, your book sucks, blah, blah, blah. And she responded and she was like, hey, I'm I'm sorry you feel that way. But I, I want you to know that I read every message I get. And what you said is hurtful. And I hope you don't really feel that way. And like a few minutes later, the person messaged her again and they were like, oh, my God, I'm so sorry. I never thought you'd actually read or respond to my message. Like, (laughs) I'm sorry. I'm usually not a jerk like that. And like they got into this back and forth where like the guy was super apologetic. And I think what happens is like people don't it's the mere image of the disembodiment that happens when you meet a fan. It's like people oftentimes online will forget that you're a person and won't treat you like one until they realize that, in fact, you are. You're
1: a page or a a face on a screen. They don't look at you as a person, or like think there's repercussions for the actions, or that it's actually being said to somebody. They think it's like going, it just lost in the internet.
0: Yes. Okay. As we get close to the end of the show, before I get to the final question, you began console wars nearly twenty years to the month after the Super NES debuted in the U.S., which was August twenty third, nineteen ninety one. But now in twenty twenty two. We're over 20 years removed from the launch of the Nintendo GameCube on November 18th, 2001. Oh my goodness. Wow. That's two generations after the Super Nintendo. So I know that you've gotten this question before on your live streams, but I have to ask it here for posterity, Dan and Pat. Does Console Wars currently have any plans to pit subsequent game systems? I know you've done the 32X Doom versus Super Nintendo Doom, but... Do you have any like Nintendo 64 versus PlayStation ideas or do you see yourself progressing beyond Super Nintendo versus Genesis? I have to imagine at some point you will eventually run out of games. We'll be 70. (laughs) (laughs) I'm not putting
1: words in Dan's mouth, but I mean, we talk about it a lot and I don't think we're going to really do that because once you get to disc based games, it's pointless. You know, they're the same kind of thing.
2: Yeah, it's tough for the later generations because the differences in the 16-bit, that was the last generation where the differences were just, like, huge. It's like, wow, this game doesn't even have that level or this game just has this complete thing. Like, yeah, they don't make games like that. They didn't make games like that for, like, the PlayStation N64 Sega Saturn eras. I mean, there's some games that, like, we saw recommendations for for that generation. And we're like, OK, maybe, maybe we'll do that. And we we might. We might, but I don't think it'll be as central to the channel as like Super Nintendo versus Sega. Like we'll like dabble in it and then we'll come right back to the 16 bit because the 16 bit is just, you know, there's just so much there. And even like going back to the 8 bit stuff, you know, Nintendo versus Sega Master System, there's a lot more there. Mm -hmm. Differences are more apparent. They're more interesting, I feel, as opposed to just like, well, the frame rate is better than this one by like, you know, it's like, all right, I'm not gonna really notice that.
1: If we do that, I'm taking N64. You could be PlayStation, but I am N64.
2: <laughs> Alright, you can have that shitty console. Oh. Ooh, all right.
1: Ocarina of Time for Life, Son. Goldeneye. What? Well, you can name five good games. That's
2: it. I'm just saying.
1: <laughs> <laughs> Star Wars. Uh, that was great. Oh yeah. What is it? Shadow of the Empire? Shadows of the Empire. Which is still sitting in Dan's
2: N sixty four on his console setup. Which is also, again, the Nintendo Power issue that I'm in with the one with Shadows of the Empire on it. Nice throwback. I believe that there is an online
0: database that has scanned every page of the Nintendo Power. So I'm actually going to find that and look you up, Dan.
2: <laughs> no, there, there is because I've used it before. Okay, I'm just saying. <laughs>
0: I'll put a link to it in the show notes. It is volume 92. I just looked it up. <laughs> volume 92. Okay, I'll put a link to it. Everyone can look at Dan's accomplishment. There you go. <laughs> So as we're wrapping up, guys, your sketches in Console Wars have become more elaborate over the years. It's very clear that you have both of you have this ambitious nature of wanting to kind of one up yourselves and not repeat yourselves and find ways to make each episode bigger, better, funnier. Yes, you have callbacks. Yes, you have recurring characters, but it seems like you're always pushing yourself to do more. And there's a part of me that also wonders like if the sketches have become a larger and larger portion of each episode to some extent because you have ambitions for moving the channel either beyond the constraints of the video game skeleton that it's been based around, or if you want to branch off and do something else separate from Console Wars that allows you to make sketches like these that are free of that constraint. Maybe I'm totally off base here, but I guess my question is for the future of the Console Wars channel, for the future of the two of you as collaborators, as filmmakers and creators, where do you see the channel and where do you see the two of you going next?
1: Fantastic question. It's a good question.
2: It's a really good question.
1: Yeah. I feel like I'm on an episode of Hot Ones. It's Honestly, one of the best
2: interviews we've had. Oh, thank you, guys. It means a lot. I'm really glad to have you both. Getting into that question, like... Where do I see the channel going? I mean, I could just see the channel going on for a long time, kind of like it's going because we do have a lot of games. But to kind of get into like the deeper thing, like, do I have any ambitions to go beyond the channel? The answer is yes. Mm-hmm. Same. Same. Sketch comedy is the bread and butter. Like, it's, it's why I do the channel. I, video game comparisons, I could do it. A lot of comments, just go of the sketch, and do the video game comparisons. I was like, no, it's fucking boring. I like the stupid cheese, man. And yeah, I do come up with like sketch comedy ideas like all the time. Like one of my favorite Netflix shows is Tim Robinson's I Think You Should Leave
0: oh god that show is so funny how good is that right oh my god that's so good my wife and i quote it all the time every day we're quoting that show we love that show so much something about the toilet with the hole in it that is too small to <laughs> be usable is so funny
2: does that ever happen to you it's a joke toilet all. it's so good it's so good I actually have a a coffee mug of him saying, does that ever happen to you? (laughs) I love that show. So yeah, I love sketch comedy. I just love the freedom and just like how crazy and like there's really like no limitation to what you can do because it's just a random sketch and it's just like five minutes of the craziest shit you've ever thought of. And it just seems so fun to me. And yeah, I'm getting excited just talking about it. So yeah, I want to branch out and do some sketch comedy, man. Yeah. I've always had like a background in sketch comedy. Dan's like loving it. There's
1: definitely potential to do something else. As far as the episodes go, like pushing things a little bit further on that, it's like you give us a game that is super popular. It kind of takes care of itself, but we'll still do something fun with it. You have a lesser known game. and We really got to like push this one. or we are going to like do something a little extra to make it a better episode? We had a nice run of movie themed games like we did Batman Forever, Terminator 2. And, uh, again, like, I'm a huge movie guy, so I think it was Terminator 2, Dan asked me, he's like, any ideas you have, throw them out, and we would just bounce back and forth with ideas. Again, those will take care of themselves. The lesser-known games, it's like, okay, what did we do with this? Lawnmower, man, we had no idea
2: what to do going in with him. <laughs> it ended up being one of the
1: best-looking episodes, and we had a blast
2: doing it. Yeah. Even the more well-known games, it's like, I don't want to do what people would expect. I like to, you know, subvert expectations and like do something completely different. And it's like, wow, I did imagine like the Bomberman episode. Like, I didn't imagine Kirby to be voiced by Kevin Conroy and Ray Romano to be in this fucking episode. Like, I love those comments. The Ray Romano cameo. <laughs> oh, my Sierica.
0: Oh, <laughs> when I first started this podcast, for instance, right, to tie it to my endeavor here, it had a much stronger through line of a theme and a much narrower subset of topics that we were discussing. But over time, I started feeling constrained by it because I began to resent the constraints more than appreciate the limits. And under the previous constraints of the show, it would not have made sense. But I realized over time, it's like the most important thing is that I stay excited about what I'm doing and I stay invested because that enthusiasm will bleed out into the audience and they can tell that. And I 100% as I started shotgunning your episodes three or four years ago with my buddy, And I made my way from episode one until however many hundred plus episodes you guys have done now, I could see, I could see a shift. The heart of this channel initially of these episodes was the comparison. Yes, there were sketches. Those were always part of it from your friend dressed up as Aladdin in episode one onward. (laughs) (laughs) That's Andy. But you could just see with the ambition and the production value and the green screen and the puppets and the sketches and the songs and everything else. I'm like, it's not that you aren't excited about console wars anymore. And it's not that you're not invested in doing these head to heads between Super Nintendo and Genesis. But I could see that your heart, your passion for the channel had transformed, had grown over time. And you were putting increasingly more and more time and effort into what were initially just bookends. And so I would say if you ever have an inkling of a passion, of a desire to do those sketches absent the console comparisons as their own thing, either on the console wars channel or off, I would say go for it because I would continue to watch them. And I imagine a substantial chunk of your audience would as well, because I think that the reason that people keep coming back for you guys is now more than the Sega and Nintendo comparisons. It's because they're invested in you. And so as we wrap out, and again, I know I've been showering you with praise throughout. (laughs) That's okay. There was a a quote from that 10th anniversary stream that Greg said, actually. And I know, Dan, it's a little weird that I'm quoting something someone said back to you. But he said, quote, when we were in high school and we had a band, after band practice, Dan would be packing up like, I don't even know why we're going to high school tomorrow. We're going to be huge rock stars, man. And the reason I bring up that quote, and the reason that I connect with you guys on a level that just personally deeper than the console nostalgia, is that as someone who's creative, as someone who grew up dreaming of creating, it reminded me of something that Sidney Lumet wrote in his book, Making Movies. I don't know if either of you have ever read that book. I highly recommend it. He says that to be a filmmaker and to be an artist in general requires a kind of willful ignorance because you have to ignore the fact that what you're attempting to do on its face is ridiculous. That all the obstacles in your way that might prevent you from succeeding are so numerous that if anyone actually internalized those obstacles, no one would ever make anything. And so I just want to say that I appreciate that you guys started this channel. I appreciate the work that you do every month. I know the work that's involved. And I so appreciate the time you guys took out of your busy schedules to have this conversation with me because I've really enjoyed it.
1: No, I had a great time. This is a fantastic podcast. Like, this is great.
2: Yeah, this is a great interview. Yeah, it made us think of things I never thought of before, man. (laughs) And I might have to start that sketch comedy thing sooner now. You really inspired me there. Well, hey, uh, thank you again for
0: your time, guys. And if you are ever in the LA area, please do not hesitate to reach out because I know you've got a taste for beer and I know some local breweries that I'd love to take you to. Sounds good.
1: I actually work at a brewery as my part-time job.
0: Do you? Okay, well, then I'll have to hit you up next time I'm in the Garden State.
1: You do that and I will gladly hit you up when we go out there. Dan, pack up. We're moving to LA now. <laughs>
0: <laughs> well, thank you again, both of you. Uh, yeah, thanks for having us. Yeah, thank you. No, this has been great. Tune in July 5th for a conversation with Zach Grauman, former presidential campaign manager for Andrew Yang. Thank you for listening. And wherever we go next, I hope you'll be there too.